This is episode 86 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2013 Annual Enrichment Conference with Michael Lawrence. This is session three from Tuesday night titled The Stories to Be Told.
And it is the story of how he kept and how he will keep that promise. So what I want to do this morning with you is consider that story of, of promise. And as we do so, I, I hope your own life, of the story of your own church perhaps, your ministry, comes into sharper focus. Because of course with God, there is no such thing as a promise that's too good to be true. So what's the story of promise? Well, it begins in the most unlikely of places, doesn't it? It begins in the very words of God's curse at the fall. Adam and Eve had, had chosen to disobey God. He's, he's brought upon them the just punishment that they deserve for their sin. But in the very sentence of condemnation, God makes a promise. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God promises that he will put enmity between his people, the seed of the woman, and Satan's people, the seed of the serpent. And that, that one day a son will be born who will defeat <coughs> Satan and his power and so deliver his people from their sin. Now, that, that promise comes out of the blue. There, there's nothing in the narrative at that point that, that causes us to, to expect that promise. Adam and Eve had done nothing to, to merit the promise, and yet, and yet there it is. As the narrative unfolds, therefore, each birth, particularly the birth of each son, is charged with potential only to disappoint. From the beginning, God's promises is challenged by our sin and by the seed of the serpent. So Cain murders Abel. And as time marches on, it's clear that humanity is captured by sin. It deserves God's ongoing judgment. And yet God's promise endures, doesn't it? For though the judgment of the flood is, is catastrophic and, and universal, God preserves Noah and his family. And, and then to ensure that his promise of deliverance is kept, God makes another promise. A promise to never again destroy the world by flood. Now centuries pass. Humanity, it turns out, very quickly we see is no better than they were before the flood. God has not forgotten his promise. In Genesis 12, he picks up that original promise and he begins to flesh it out, right? He, he chooses Abraham, one old childless man, and promises to make him into a great nation that will ultimately bless all the nations. Now, Abraham tries to fulfill God's promise on his own. But God doesn't need Abraham's help. And he's adamant that his promise will be kept by grace, not by human effort. And so barren Sarah gives birth to Isaac, the miracle baby. Then Isaac's son, Jacob, has 12 sons. And it looks like the promise of becoming a great nation is really on its way. Things are really taking off now. But then all of a sudden, once again, God's promise is challenged by, by jealousy and strife, by, by attempted murder, by Joseph's slavery and imprisonment, by a famine that comes that threatens the existence of the entire family of promise. God is faithful. He sovereignly uses Joseph's suffering, which his brothers meant for evil as the very means of salvation and deliverance for the whole family. 
So now the promise appears like it's back on track again. Only to be delayed. Only to be challenged again. As the descendants of Jacob find themselves enslaved in Egypt. A whole generation of boys slaughtered. But again, God is faithful. In the midst of the slaughter, God preserves the life of Moses. And then uses Moses to deliver the entire nation from slavery. At Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel in, in much the same way that he did with Adam and Eve before the fall. If they obey, they get to stay in the promised land. If they rebel, they get kicked out of the promised land. It's like a garden. Of course, their rebellion begins almost immediately. But though God judges his people, he remains faithful. He remains faithful to his promise to Abraham. A, a new generation led by Joshua is raised up, and, and God gives them the land he had promised their forefathers. Against all odds, they conquer the Canaanites. And though the, the people of Israel continue to rebel, and, and though God continues to chastise them, he also raises up judges, successors to Moses and Joshua, who again and again rescue the people and vanquish their enemies, reminding us again and again of that promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Finally, in an act of ultimate rebellion, the nation of Israel rejects God as their king and asks for a king like all the other nations have. Now he teaches them a lesson with Saul, but in mercy... God then anoints a king after his own heart, David, who will be like a son to him. And God makes another promise now. A, a, a promise to David, a promise that really is just an extension of that promise to Abraham. And that gives final shape to the promise of Genesis 3. God promises David that he will always have a son to sit on the throne of Israel, God's people forever, and that son will rule in righteousness. So it turns out that the promised son that's going to deliver from Genesis 3, that is going to be uh, the, the, uh, the seed of, of this great nation, it turns out that that son is in fact a king who will deliver his people. Once again, every birth charged with potential. It looks like it's gonna be Solomon. But it's not. Solomon proves unfaithful. Judgment follows. Civil war. The division of the kingdom. The kings in the north, are, are, are they the ones in, in which the promise is going to go forward? No. They get worse and worse and worse until God finally sends the northern kingdom into an exile that they never return from. In the south, there are periodic renewals. But they're never complete. Never last. Finally, God sends Judah into exile. And it seems there in Babylon that the promise has failed. But right there, once again, like we've seen every single time, in the context of judgment, in the context of exile, God reveals that he's not forgotten his promise. God reveals that he has not failed. The prophets are given a message of hope. That God will make a new covenant with his people. Judah returns from exile. But the new covenant hasn't arrived yet. Not for many more centuries. Not finally until one night in the town of Bethlehem, 
the city of David, a son is born, whose name is Jesus. Angels attend his birth. Kings come from afar to honor him. Could this finally be the, the promised son, the, the long-expected king who would deliver his people? Everything about his life suggests that he is. His words have authority. His, his work of healing and exorcism is nothing short of miraculous. It seems that God has not forgotten. It seems that he's finally keeping his word. And then, unthinkable happens. Just like we've seen over and over and over again. Sin and rebellion seem to gain the upper hand. The religious leaders of Israel reject the king. The Roman authorities crucify him. And in a cold, dark tomb outside Jerusalem, God's promise seems to have finally and utterly died. But nothing could be further from the truth. Three days later, Jesus gets up from the dead and demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that God keeps his promises. Amen. Death on the cross as a sacrifice, Jesus had finally kept that promise of Genesis 3.15. He has crushed Satan's power. He has freed his people from their bondage to sin. And through his resurrection, he guarantees that the new life of the kingdom of God had finally dawned. Preach. <laughs> that, my friends, is the story of promise. There it is. From beginning almost to the end. Now, what I want us to do is take a few moments here and think about the story together, as I just told you. And what I want us to think about are, are, are three things. I want us to understand the promise made. That's first. Let's think about the promise God made. But then second, I want us to consider why the fulfillment of God's promise is delayed. And, and then finally, third, how the promise has been kept and will be kept. So the promise made, the promise delayed, the promise kept. First, the promise made. As we saw in the story, though God makes many promises that surround and protect and clarify, all of these center on one fundamental promise. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God has promised to deliver his people, to restore them to a relationship to him by defeating sin and Satan's power. Now, now several things that we want to notice about this promise. To begin with, it is entirely of God's initiative. It is a promise of grace, pure and simple. Adam and Eve had just rejected God in all of his goodness. They were living in a perfect world. And they rejected him. They deserved nothing but his righteous wrath. And all of a sudden, God promises to deliver them and their descendants. And of course, that becomes a pattern in the story. Did you notice that pattern? What was Abraham when God promised to make him a blessing to the nations? An idolater. And the son of an idolater, when he called him out of earth. What was Moses when God set him apart? A murderer, a fugitive from justice, 
What was the nation of Israel when God promised to deliver them? A broken and despised people. Nothing. What was David when God anointed him as king? A little shepherd boy who would grow up to be a murderer and an adulterer. And who are you when God's promise is held out to you in the gospel? Someone who's worthy of that promise? No, not at all. None of us are. As Paul says, all of us have gratified the cravings of our sinful nature and followed its desires and thoughts. All of us are by nature objects of wrath. Friends, as we preach this story, as we tell this story, we need to be really clear. God does not owe us salvation. The only obligation that he has to us is the obligation of justice, the debt of justice, which demands that our rebellion be punished exactly as it deserves. So the promise of salvation is a promise of grace. We need to put aside our presumption that God will forgive that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a, a gospel of presumption. Of course God will forgive. No. But we also need to, some of us, put aside our assumption that God cannot forgive. That we're just too bad. That we're beyond the pale. No, not at all. Neither presumption nor assumption. No, we, we need instead to humbly accept that God has promised give in the gospel. It's a promise of grace. It demands humility. Now, not only is God's promise gracious, it is also personal. As God elaborates on his promise again and again, we see that his purpose is to restore a people to himself, to bring a people into relationship with himself. As we saw last night, the biblical language for this is covenant. So God covenants to make Abraham into a great nation there in Genesis 15. And then at Mount Sinai, he betrothed the nation to himself, making the nation of Israel his people, his special bride. In 2 Samuel 7, God covenants that he will be a father to David's son. That's the language of relationship. In the new covenant, what does Jeremiah promise? He promises that God's people will know him. From the least Too often, I think, we believe, wrongly, that if God really loved us, he'd make our life better. If God really loved me, he'd make my life easier. I would have more comfort. I would have less trouble in life. Friends, the proof of God's love is, is not our personal ease or comfort in this life. The proof of God's love is what he's given us in his promise of the gospel. He's given us himself. There's the proof. That he would give us the best gift that he could possibly give himself. So this promise is gracious. This promise is personal. It's also trustworthy. You know, the problem with promises that we make is they're only as good as our intentions. And they're only as trustworthy as our ability to perform them. And that means even the best of us are fundamentally promise breakers because our intentions are not what they ought to be 
And even when they're good, our ability doesn't rise to the level. Not God. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. For he cannot lie. So his promise is never deceived. He's, he's all-powerful. He's the sovereign creator. So, so there's no lacking in ability. His promises cannot fail. You know, this is the point of that strange image that we looked at last night of the smoking pot and the flaming torch passing through the animals in Genesis 15. That image represented the invisible God taking an oath, saying, in effect, if I don't keep my promise, this is God speaking, if I don't keep my promise, then what was done to those animals, let it be done to me. Amazing. The, the book of Hebrews, looking back on this passage, makes this comment. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. <coughs> Christian, I don't know what kind of struggles you come in here with today. But whatever they are, if you are in Christ, then you can be certain that God will preserve you to the end. Because God keeps his promises. That, that certainty has nothing to do with the strength of your faith or the righteousness of your life. It has everything to do with the power and the faithfulness of God who keeps his promises. As Paul says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God keeps his promises. <coughs> Always. Just take it to the bank. But of course, in stating it that strongly, and that's how strong it's got to be stated, if God's promise is so certain, it raises the question of why it seems to be taking so long for him to come through on it. So that's what we want to look at second here, the, the, the promise delay. Why didn't God just fix matters right there in the garden? Why didn't God send Jesus before the flood? Why doesn't God send Jesus back now? Like, what's wrong with that? Now seems good. Why all the waiting? It's a big part of the story. You saw that as the story unfolded. Why all the waiting? And of course, with the waiting, the inevitable suffering that comes with the waiting. These are huge questions, and I'm not going to fully settle them all, but I think the story itself, in the story itself, God gives several reasons for his slowness, for his patience, his delay in keeping the promise. And the first one is so that his people will be purified. So that his people will be purified. One of the constant refrains in the Old Testament is that God uses suffering, even chastisement, to refine his people, to, to purify them. It's the image of smelting in which the dross is removed and all that remains is the, the precious metal. So in Psalm 66, looking back on the wilderness wanderings, the difficult days of the judges, the psalmist declares, For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. Zechariah, looking forward 
to the Messiah says the exact same thing. Though, though many will reject the Messiah, Zechariah promises that some will turn to him. And then he says that those who turn to the Messiah, well, this is what God's going to do to them. God says, I will bring them into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. So, Pastor, understand that though this world means it for evil, God intends and is using the suffering in your life for your good and the good of your people. He's not interested in the dross of your sin. He, he, he's not interested in the, the worthless metal of your efforts. What he desires in your life is the pure gold of unalloyed trust in him. He is sanctifying you. And he's probably using your own church to do it. <laughs> So just as Jesus Christ learned obedience from what he suffered, as he entrusted himself to God in the wilderness temptation, in the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, in the desolation of the cross itself, so, Pastor, we are learning to put our faith solely in God through our suffering. Because we know that God's discipline produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. But it's not just our purification God's after. He's also patient in keeping his promise because he's concerned to reorient our hope. To reorient our hope. This world is constantly singing a, a siren song of hope in our ears. Urging ourselves to, to invest ourselves here, to live for this life, to, to save up earthly treasure, to, to cultivate the praise of men. Because in those things consists life. It's a beautiful song. But like the siren's song, it's a song that leads to destruction. God knows this. And he wants us to come to the exact same realization. And so when he saves his people, he does not whisk us off to heaven. He leaves us here. In part to do good works. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But in part to learn that this world is not our home. To grow in us a longing for a better country, a heavenly one. His desire is that we would grow weary of the lies, the, the pretenses, the broken promises that this world peddles. And instead, like Abraham, live as an alien here, all the while looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder wants to reorient our hope to fit us for heaven. One other reason that God is patient and delays his promise. Peter puts it this way. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You understand that God's patience means today, the day of salvation, Prolonged. This was a huge surprise in the story. Everybody thought that when the Messiah came, that would be it. You know, end of story. The Messiah comes, it's judgment day. 
Huge surprise, the Messiah comes and the day of salvation is prolonged. But it will not be prolonged forever. We don't know the day when God's patience will come to an end, but it will come to an end. And so, of course, we are rightly concerned today about current human suffering. But we are especially concerned about eternal human suffering. The only message that can, reveal, that can relieve it, the message that Jesus Christ died for sinners who repent and put their faith in That brings us to the final thing I want us to think about briefly this morning, and that is the promise kept. The promise kept. How has God kept his promise to crush sin and Satan's power? He's done it through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Far from being merely the tragic work of wicked men, far from being Satan's triumph over Jesus, the cross was God's triumphant victory. In Genesis 15, God had promised to take the covenant curse upon himself rather than fail to keep that promise. What Abraham could scarcely imagine was that God would keep his promise precisely by taking the covenant curse upon himself. But the king who came to deliver his people was at the same time the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. On the cross, not despite the cross, on the cross, God kept his promise. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. But it's not just that God has kept the promise on the cross and at the resurrection. It is that he continues to keep the promise through the Holy Spirit. whom Jesus has sent as a down payment and sign that the good things promised are true and already here. So Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. How does the Holy Spirit do this? Well, he does it by applying the life of heaven to our lives now, here on earth. He does it by producing in us the fruit of the Spirit, which is, which is heavenly fruit. Friends, here is where good deeds come in. Here is where justice comes in. Justice is not a replacement for the gospel. Justice is not an expansion of the gospel. Justice is not a completion of the gospel. No, justice is testimony to the truth and power of the gospel in our lives. And nowhere should that be more evident than in our local churches. Because it is in the life of the body 
not just the individual, but the body gathered, that the life of the Spirit is most clearly demonstrating His life and His power in us as we love one another and serve one another and encourage one another and exhort one another for no other reason than that we have Christ in common. You understand it's, it's really easy to build a club of people that are all exactly like each other. The world does that. The world's very good at it. And when we turn our churches into clubs of people that all look like each other because they're all into the same thing and the world looks at our churches, they don't see the power of the Spirit. They see what actually they're better at anyway. <clears throat> but when in a local church, people who don't like the same kind of music and who don't dress the same and aren't the same age and aren't from the same socioeconomic class all love and serve and encourage and exhort one another? Oh, that the world cannot explain. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. So do you see the evidence of the Spirit in your life? Do you see the evidence of the Spirit in your church's life? Then brothers and sisters, take heart. God is keeping His promise. And the day will come when He redeems His down payment with payment in full. It's a day we still look forward to. That day when Christ returns and we enter into the full redemption not just of our souls, but of our bodies, too, and all of creation with us. For God means to fully and finally deliver his people, not just from the guilt of sin and the condemnation of sin, but from this very body of death itself. Friends, Jesus Christ is coming back. And on that day, the trumpet of God will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be Change. On that day, finally, the dross will be completely gone. The sin will be gone. Sanctification and suffering will give way to glorification and joy. And on that day, we will be like Him. For we will see Him as He really is. As Paul declares with a shout of joy, Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians stand firm. Persevere. Brothers and sisters, your labor is not in vain. Christ has kept his promise. He has delivered you from sin and from Satan's power. And he has promised to never leave you. Not to the very end of the age. It is a promise that he will certainly keep. For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. It's a promise. There is no better promise maker. But more to the point, there is no other promise keeper.